Welcome to the Mutual Aid Society podcast. I'm your host, Salamawit. Mutual aid is a term that has varying definitions. Here are just a few. Merriam-Webster Dictionary says it's reciprocal aid and cooperation as among men and social groups. FEMA defines it as the timely and efficient sharing of capabilities in the form of resources and services upon request. A more modern definition given by trans activist Dean Spade is, it's a form of political participation in which people take responsibility for caring for one another and changing political conditions not just through symbolic acts or putting pressure on the representatives in government, but by actually building new social relations that are more survivable. I created this podcast to explore the various forms of mutual aid that can exist within communities and how it often goes beyond money or financial support. Today's guest is Whitney McGuire Esquire. Whitney is a mother, a New York State licensed attorney, a sustainability consultant and strategist, and co-founder of Sustainable Brooklyn, an organization that disrupts the whitewashing of sustainable fashion, agriculture, and well-being in order to concretize equity for those first and most impacted by the climate crisis. Whitney is a pioneer in the field of fashion law and supports the sustainability of BIPOC artists as an attorney and advocate. Hey, Whitney. I'm happy to have you on the Mutual Aid Society podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I was just listening to that bio, like, I should edit some of that. You know, it's just like, it's always a work in progress. I think I'm going to change equity to liberation. It's all good. But yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. I'm happy to have you here. I'm happy to talk today. I, I would love to start from the beginning. So you grew up in what Dayton, Ohio, and then you also lived in Las Vegas. So can you share a little bit about like your upbringing, what your environment was like? Sure. How did I come into this world? My mother is an artist, she's a jazz singer. She had a very interesting and successful career as a performer and uh, singer in New York for more than a decade. And she moved back to Ohio to regroup after encountering the AIDS crisis and really losing a lot of her very close friends. And so she came back to Ohio, I think in part to grieve, but also to reset, never really intending to stay there. And she reconnected with my father Mm -hmm. and my father was from a different type of family, like working class, but like, we're also going to do whatever we have to do to get what we need to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? So after I was born, about six months after I was born, my father was incarcerated for, I think his sentence was like five years and he ended up serving less than that. But my mother immediately became a single mom. We lived with my grandparents who were like the typical black middle class, like Basically, their grandparents were sharecroppers. Their parents were like the first generation to move from the South. And, you know, they were the second generation born into Dayton in the Midwest. And so we lived with them for the first five years of my life. My mother was also teaching around this time. And by the time I was 13, my mother and I had lived many different places in, in Dayton. My father had relocated to Columbus and... I was seeing the town be impacted by 
a lot of things that I didn't know how to articulate at the time. But when they started closing my favorite restaurants, like the Red Lobster, or they started closing the grocery stores that were closest, you know, to our side of town, when they started like closing high schools and things like that, I started to feel like the world was kind of like closing in on me. (laughs) And I think I, I shared this aspect of wanderlust a little bit that my mother also, I think, expresses or exhibits and I wanted to leave. So I started researching boarding schools at like like age 12. My mom, again, she was a public school teacher. There was this program called A Better Chance that used to recruit kids from like inner city schools and connect them to independent schools, either in their towns or boarding schools or elsewhere. So I was there, I was at my mom's school one day when they were doing like a recruitment fair and they had representatives speaking to students and I was like this is interesting I hadn't like Harry Potter I don't even think had come out yet or maybe it did and I just hadn't read it but they're very similar (laughs) in terms of the spectacle (laughs) and everything but more on that later so I I also connected with a couple of students that my mom had previously taught who actually went through the program themselves. And so they would come back to, to my mom's class because she was one of their favorite teachers, you know, just to say hi. And I, you know, spoke to a couple of them. One of them in particular was like, I think you should apply. I really think you would like this. So I was going to the library, looking up books on boarding schools and trying to figure out how to apply. Cause you know, that's also mm-hmm. a skill. I was accepted into a, a better scale. Camp. I know, exactly. Girl, I started at, at an early age. But anyway, the I, I was accepted into a better chance. And I think they might have recommended some schools for me, but I was also told by white people's secrets are real, right? And like when you start to like kind of get into that world of like, this money ecosystem where there are a lot of secrets that they definitely don't want you to know but there's some who are like okay I'll you know support this out of the goodness of my heart whatever there I encountered those people oh, and man. I appreciate <laughs> I really do like I appreciate the the time that they spent to inform me about certain things and how this like system works but I was given information to like directly apply to the boarding school as well as go through the a better chance way so I did that and wow. um, I got into a lot of independent boarding schools, but the one that I ended up going to gave me a full tuition scholarship. So my mom didn't have to pay. There was no way I was going to go anyway. Like my mom was like, okay, you have to get a scholarship. <laughs> I can't pay for this. So, um, yeah. and, and it ended up being the school that the two kids that my mom had previously taught also. Wow. So I went to boarding school and that same year my mother had also accepted a job in Vegas to join their public school system as a teacher and we moved out to Vegas I lived there for all of one summer and thinking of Vegas it's like I didn't want to move out there I knew I didn't want to stay I think that was also part of my motivation for leaving Dayton but I, I ended up going to Newport, Rhode Island, very far away from both of my parents, very far away from my support system and cultivated a, an entirely new community for myself and ended up being like student body president, but very much like I'm very aware that I'm the only black dark-skinned person or woman in my class. I think that experience 
ignited this part of me that's always been between law and order, I guess. Being born into a divided family because of the because of incarceration. And then they also subsequently divorced like when I was five. So they've always been apart, but like kind of just like navigating these two worlds in a black working class part of town. I think that informs a lot of like my activism and community care. I was also born into a Buddhist household. My mom practiced Buddhism since she was in her twenties and continues to this day. And I think this concept of like the oneness of self and environment has just been just a thorough line throughout my life of this is a philosophy of how I exist in the world. I'm not apart from. Mm -hmm. And so I think when it comes to assessing my capacity for care, I just have this understanding that the more that I'm doing for others and myself, it all supports (laughs) each other. Yeah. Is there a specific person? It sounds like it might be your mom or maybe your spiritual practice that showed you at an early age what mutual aid or community development is. I think it was, it it wasn't just one person. I think it was like just the fact that my family and my community knew how to look out for each other. You know, like we had a house to move into. We had community from like church to the spiritual, the Buddhist community to, I think it was just like, I think I was just born into a lot of just healthy ecosystems at once and kind of saw how each was connected. And my mom knew how to also connect different ecosystems to provide the best care because there were a lot of threats to our survival. Like I, I, you know, I'm not going to go into depth about the, harm and and just very real anxiety triggers all around me throughout that yeah 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 yeah. but you know I do think that that was just getting to becoming who I am and and just really getting to the point now where I'm like okay I'm healthy things are are okay I have a, a pretty good perspective on things I think that is a tribute to attributable to the community that I have been a part of and just the way that they've shown me how to exhibit care. Yeah. In your childhood, do you remember seeing anyone who did the kind of work you're doing now? Like, or was there maybe like a different name or word for that career or role in your community? I don't even know what I do now. (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) <laughs> it's just you know I know it's just it's really hard to put it into words but well it's like the language yeah now we have more words and, and more descriptive words to describe exactly what we do or what we're trying to do but I think sometimes like depending on our community or our culture like there's different words for it or there's sometimes it's the elder in the community sometimes it was like a community leader maybe it was a teacher things like that I really can't say that there is anyone in particular that I can say exhibited the the way that I kind of move about the world now, only because a large part of my work centers around mental health. And when I was growing up, that was just something that people didn't talk about. People, we didn't really have the time, the capacity or the resources to address mental health and for in terms of like the what I what I was experiencing and what I was exposed to yeah so 
I will say that there are parts of everyone that had a hand in raising me that form, you know, the, the, the person that I am and the foundation of my work and my ability to care. But my care is based on how far I'm willing to go to really know myself and create the space for that self-exploration so that I can know people even better. And it's also rooted in, in transforming the relationship with myself. So as I'm doing that, I'm transforming my relationship with community. And I've learned that practice from a lot of people in my life, especially my mother. I appreciate you sharing that because there's, there's this quote I wanted to share with you that, and it reminds me of you and sort of the way I see you maneuver in your work and your life. So it's a quote from Bell Hooks from her book, An Outlaw Culture Resisting Representations that came out like 1994, I think. She has an essay called Love as the Practice of Freedom. And in it, she proposes an ethic of love as the means by which we might be guided to turn away from an ethic of domination. So without an ethic of love, shaping the direction of our political vision and our radical aspirations, we are often seduced in one way or the other into continued allegiance to the systems of domination, such as imperialism, sexism, racism, classism. A love ethic, she says, emphasizes the importance of service to others. Within the value system of the US, any task or job that is related to service is devalued. Service strengthens our capacity to know compassion, and deepens our insight. We learn to love by giving service. And the moment we choose to love, we begin to move against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. And that action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. I read that, I thought of you, because you you do seem to display like a deep commitment to centering love and honor, I think within yourself, like through your spiritual practice, even the way you are willing to openly critically examine yourself, critically examine others, even with the way you operate your law practice to the way Mm -hmm. you and Dominique co-lead and collaborate with Sustainable Brooklyn to the workshops and courses you guys offer. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still going girl to how you emphasize the importance of artists protecting their work, to the numerous volunteer events that you guys do, even in your electrifying labor acknowledgement speech, to the rent relief fund you and Dominique created early in the pandemic when many people weren't even sure what they were doing. And you know, you guys came together and said, no, we need to figure out a way to support our community. And even how you write and use language. Hmm. Mm. your family so that's that's something these are two significant themes I see in your work and in your practice so I wanted to share that with you thank you that I love that thank you so much (laughs) so you know you mentioned that your approach is holistic in nature so what does healing mean to you now that's a good question Healing, I think for me it's a process I say that all the time I don't think that is anything that can be complete it's the journey using all these cliches like when I think about physically how I've had to heal like at a very early age I have third degree burns like 
all over my body. I've had to go, go through like skin grafts and, you know, ridicule because I'm different and, you know, realizing and, and just kind of like seeing how, you know, also another healing journey, which is like healing from the cesarean or like, you know, the physical tearing of your scar tissue, uh, forming of scar tissue and learning how to take care of like the physical part of me. Um, the internal also responds. Healing for me yeah. is only informed by my understanding of harm. <gasps> because I think that is the compass for me in determining because not everything is going to be healed. Like some things just need to fucking fester and, and, dec- and just decay. And <laughs> like, let that shit fall off. Like, look at these plants. Like this one right here. I mean, I know this is a podcast, but like this little leaf, it was, I was so excited about this little leaf. And then it just, it was just like, I'm dead. And I was like, <laughs> like gray. <laughs> great. <laughs> But, you know, so then I'm going to prune it and and make sure that the rest of the plant can thrive. And I think that is kind of what harm identification, like as a practice for me, I think that's why it's underpinning my healing journey and like defining what healing means for me. I guess going back to the idea of like, as I've healed physically or I'm healing physically, I know it's like, I still have scar tissue. I still have to massage it. I still have to, I know that when I carry, I'm always going to carry tension on the left side of my body because my skin is an organ and it has been pulled tightly because it has that's how it healed you know so that healing caused some tension so but it hasn't been harmful right but it could have been harmful if it didn't heal I think harm is really how I define healing for me right now and I don't even know if that's a definition it's just what the process is looking like right now yeah, it's what it means to you. Yeah, I, I yeah. completely understand. So you once said in an interview, nothing about my pleasure is guilty, which I love. So I, I'm curious to know, <laughs> <laughs> what are your guiding beliefs or values right now? I just had a little shower meditation just this morning about how happiness is something that I'm rooted in in terms of like this is something that's possible right this is a spiritual possibility this is a physical possibility there are whole religions that are based on (laughs) the possibility of happiness and yet it has such a bad rep people don't trust it and and so it's like can I genuinely be a happy person (laughs) like in order to relate to other people or am I going to be perceived as performing something that is inauthentic and then how do I also just like live in that and and experience it define it for myself yeah so I think and identifying the ways that of course like happiness is not trusted because it is something that evil can absolutely use to manipulate people and we're all two sides of the same coin we're all experiencing two sides of the light shadow all of it this is just like a the beginning of a forming thought mm-hmm. that happiness is no need to distort or manipulate or to express a, a purpose and and so I think really like as truth is always becoming more defined for me like what does that mean I just know that it is important for me to live that way like 
based on that. You know, I'm reevaluating happiness as not only a possibility, but a reality. And yeah, expressing it the way that is based on my truth. So it sounds pretty simple, but like during a pandemic and during like a time when there are so many threats to our general ability to actually live happy lives, I think it's revolutionary. Oh, it absolutely is. <laughs> it most definitely is. So what does community mean to you now? You know, post-pandemic, when we started to really isolate, either with ourselves or with our families, roommate, community definitely uh, became, it, it was redefined. There, this is a time of re- redefining, really, but community definitely took on a different form. I just think of it as an ecosystem of care, honestly. I think that yeah. community can be created. And I think that it's just like, I I think of it as like a circuit, like a motherboard where like there are different circuits that have to fire at different times for different purposes to get the whole picture, the whole thing running, but we're still a part of that like network. So there's a space for conflict. There's a space for, you know, healing. There's a space for just like moving. There's a, there are different spaces to cultivate an ecosystem of care so that the community is supported and supported but yeah community to me right now is is an it's like a verb it's Mm. it's a yeah it's it's definitely within actions now like there's a lot of people talking about oh the community oh I'm all about the community but it's like what are you doing it's true who are or what are your your guides in your life and practice like are there specific resources or communities you look to to anchor you as an artist, an attorney, and leader in sustainability? I look to y'all, my friends, leaders in these fields to a certain extent. I try not to pedestal anyone. My heart guides me. My heart definitely guides me. And I would say just like the process of, of calibrating mind and body and heart. And, and I think learning to really refine my intuitive skills because I think again in this process of like identifying truth you you definitely are able to identify what could be a distortion and I feel that in my body sometimes so yeah I think all of that is just what guides me that process of just like continuing to figure out how to think these things and not being afraid of confrontation using various healing modalities like from the spiritual to the practical like talk therapy whatever I need to do and also being a mother that's a huge guide for me in mothering my son I'm learning how to mother myself and I really think that this idea of always interrogating my relation my friendship with myself not interrogating it as like you know in, a, in an adversarial way but in a way that's just like how can we go deeper in this you know I really I'm I really want to because I think friendship is something that we all are missing in the whole like how are we going to come together like it's really important that people are friends whether that's with only one person or 
with many. I just think that what we expect in friendships have, has also been distorted to like cause people to not feel liberated or not be able to express liberation. And we need more friendship. So for me, that's like defining that for myself. That's been really important. Excel Hooks is a... <laughs> A leader for me was someone who I look to as a guide, Audre Lord, and all of the people I'm so fortunate to call friends and, and family, selected family. I'd love to pivot and hear about the Greenish Book, which is a new project that you've been working on with Dominique. What can people expect in 2022? The Greatest Book, it's a tool that will connect people to businesses that prioritize the safety, comfort, and agency of Black consumers, Black lives. It is a public-facing accountability tool that it's intended to strengthen relationships between businesses, consumers, and the community. There's no secret that in commercial spaces, in places of modern transactional spaces, places where money is exchanged. Uh, so like the Black consumer is by and large the most targeted, the most subjected to violence, harm. And this is an aspect of obviously a, a cultural habit that we have to not protect Black lives to not support our safety. And, you know, we cannot wait for a duty of care to be created. We have to create it ourselves. And so through focusing on commerce or businesses and places where Black people choose to spend our money, you know, like let's start there. So that's that's what we're doing. And it's, it's based in Brooklyn. So it's hyper-local. I think that's one of the differentiating factors of it. There are many differentiating factors that we've found in comparison to other guides that are out there and directories that are out there. But I think focusing on the original Green Book actually was for the first two years only listed Harlem businesses. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it was oh, a Harlem-based okay. publication. Local for me, local care is, is what it's about. I feel like we have these intentions of like, building vast networks and scaling. And I think that's what that kind of thinking has gotten us where we are in the first place, where we are so intent on identifying, you know, who we are versus how we can work together because we also have a planet. (laughs) We take care of. We need to take care so that we can also sustain, so we can be sustained. So the Greenish book really is, for me, premise on if, if we cannot be safe, then we can't be sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. And we cannot afford for an entire demographic to not only continue to be excluded from conversations about how we can sustain as an entire human race, but also to be denied the, the rights and access and humanity to actually make that an, a possibility for not only our community, but you know, for communities that extend beyond the margins. And so, yeah, that's what the Greenish book is so far. We have a cool team of of researchers and partners. We've partnered with Mokata Museum, Protect Black Business, Kate Cornrows, and Lisa Betty, who is a Fordham Law professor and historian, Kiali Sikar, who is an independent researcher, data strategist, 
who's got Charity Gates on it, who's dynamic lawyer. So yeah, we're just like plugging along and we're still in the research phase, but in 2022, we hope to have uh, some type of, of application that people can use to access uh, this data. But we are definitely all about the data and, and making sure these metrics that we're using to even identify safety and define it um, are based on real lived experiences of people in this community. That's amazing. So your project, it reminds me of an economist named Muhammad Yunus, who works in like international development. And in his book, A World of Three Zeros, he talks about like the importance of like social business, because he's also a social entrepreneur. And mm-hmm. he basically has this theory that like social businesses are a great way to solve human problems because the whole idea is you're using creativity to solve human problems in a sustainable way. He talks about how like technology is really important, mobilizing the youth, because he argues that social businesses represent a crucial element to transition the current greed-based civilization to a civilization based on the deeper human values of sharing and caring so yes what you're That's doing Muhammad Yunus can you send me that quote please yeah. oh I love that I'm gonna read the book too the the initiative that you guys have created reminds me of what he has talked about and what he's tried to do with his own efforts he's from Bangladesh and so that kind of brings me to the my next question of like what are your thoughts around technology and mutual aid and like what role do you think it can play with community development? And what have you learned in your process of creating the Greenish book? So my husband, Bandela Bandela on, on the Instagram, Nelson Bandela, the, the, the artist name, has really helped me understand kind of like this idea of technologies, like plural, meaning that it's not just the ones and zeros that we use to, you know, trigger responses to our input, but more so kind of like how different ecosystems work together. And so I think technology can be used in terms of mutual aid is necessary when we think of it as the ones and zeros aspect to trigger the responses that we need based on what we input, right? So like, if we're just mindlessly using technology to like scroll and and we physically kind of like receive these responses to our input that we may not necessarily want oh this makes me feel like shit you know like or uh oh I'm gonna leave this comment on this real human being page so there are so many ways that technology has kind of defined divisiveness and sort of division. And I think there's also been, and we saw this in 2020 during the pandemic, how mutual aid really flourished on technological platforms. And and because the input was different, right? The purpose of using it was different. And I think that idea, like that purpose, that part is another technology. And, And I think that that's also an aspect of, of, how we can more, I just say, just like more healthy use technology to support mutual aid because mutual aid is going to be something that is, an, it's just a non-negotiable now and it's going to just be more relevant for more people in the future because our our systems that that really dictate our livelihoods and our access to uh, resources are completely depraved. And so the, we can't wait for them to catch up to 
not being evil. <laughs> to, or to, we can't wait for them to catch up. So yeah, humans, these people, they have left. They have, whoa, yes. We can't wait for that. And so mutual aid, as we start to refine the tools that define mutual aid, that aspect of also not allowing the input, these technologies to be depraved will be, is actively like the next aspect of technology that we need to work on. I think that there is really important for mutual aid. In fact, it is mutual aid technology should just be another word for mutual aid. So I want to pivot a little bit to another side of who you are, which is your artistic side. There's another quote I'd like to share with you. This is from Juliana Bruno, who's a professor and scholar of visual art, media architecture. And she's written numerous books about, you know, architecture, film, media, art, visual culture. And so this quote is from her book, Surface, Matters of Aesthetics, Materiality, and Media. She basically talks about like, how surface is the most tender of material, like starting from skin to clothes, to canvases, facades, walls, and screens. And she argues like surface is not superficial, but rather there's nothing more important because it connects together in life and art. And a specific quote I wanna share with you. She says, we address just as we access a house or a movie house, as we put ourselves in it, we absorb it, and it absorbs us because it is inhabited. Design wears the marks of life, both material and to occupy space is literally to wear it. And so with you, you've explored your artistic voice and healing through interior design, writing, and film. For example, you've directed a music video, You to Shit Girl by, <laughs> by David Smith. You have written articles. You have done an online public art exchange with your In the Future Black People Are statement. You've even interior designed a few homes. So can you share a little bit about your projects, your process, and how do you think this side of your work informs your work in community development? My art practice has informed my community practice in so much as I've learned how to identify the ways that I've neglected parts of myself in pursuit of sort of like valid like community validation and, and you know the things that are probably the unhealthy input I've always been artistic like that's I think you know being surrounded by artists and having them tell me like you are very you like more artistic than me sometimes like it's just like this tension of like seeing how art was not necessarily the uh, most lucrative aspect of my upbringing for my mom and feeling a sense of responsibility to change that change generational access to resources that we didn't have whether that looks like wealth or monetarily or, or not just like you know a better life and so I decided to go to law school <laughs> And because I have this, you know, this deep desire to learn, I wanted to learn the social code. I'm sure I kept telling myself, but I think it really was like I wanted to have a six-figure job that I could, you know, be able to access at the time what my dreams were. Mm -hmm. But 
whenever I completely focused on that and lost the creative aspect of myself or, or neglected that part of myself, I would become depressed. And, you know, I think that's why I think mental health is such a great barometer for, for how am I living in a healthy way? You know, it's not something that I've ever shied away from or ever been embarrassed by because it's like, that means my body is working. We're not supposed to be feeling fucking great about, you know, taking out six-figure student loans and, and working in places that really don't care about us and our livelihood just to spend it, it like a portion of the day with our families and then maybe a portion of the year you know you know collectively like oh yeah I spent a little bit of time seeing my child grow up or or even listening yeah. to myself you know yeah so I think I've I've always tried to create this balance for myself where it's like I'm not letting this creative artistic part of myself go but in, in, as I've gotten, you know, to this point, really just this year where I'm stepping away from the law, the practice of law gradually and leaning more into the projects that bring me joy. You know, I think in that process, I have deepened my community relationships and my ability to identify like, okay, if I can do this for myself, I can do this for one other person. Okay, I can do this for two other people. I can do this for and an organization, yeah. for my building, for my block. The two have definitely been informed by by the other. So yeah, that's that's awesome. It shows in your work. So as we kind of wind down, what does legacy mean to you? I, I ask myself this question a lot because. I only started really thinking about legacy when I became a mom. Before that, I wasn't really focused on what I would leave behind. I think that's kind of just like a general sense of what people think when you think of legacy. Like, what what do you leave when you, you know, after you die? I think that my spiritual practice has informed how I think of, like, leaving this world because it has not been deep in materialism or materiality it's always been you can't take none of this with you so <laughs> like how will people feel you know like how how will you encounter <laughs> your death how will you feel <laughs> when that moment comes because everyone has to experience that moment and so yeah my legacy has really been based in in happiness like I want to leave a legacy of of joy and and happiness and I don't know what that looks like I don't know what that that has never meant generational wealth to me I do know that happiness requires money like don't let anybody in this world lie to anybody else about happiness not being money not leading to happiness that's a lie when you haven't had money you know what it feels like to have it (laughs) it's true no I agree I agree You know, so this is for your listeners. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so, you know, legacy is, it's just, you know, how, what that, what does that look like? What is, what are the intentions that I'm putting forward now to leave that behind? You know, what, what will that look like? I try not to give it any form, but I do know that I, what I want it to feel like for those that I do leave behind. 
or for, for those who I will wait for to rejoin me. That's what hey. I, I like to think of that that way. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So what would be your hope and vision for the future, specifically, let's say 2032? So by the time this these episodes come out, it'll be kind of the end of this year. So mm-hmm. if we're thinking of 2032, what would be your hope and vision for that time? in terms of the work you do and the types of mutual aid systems that you think could exist? By 2030, I feel like we will have systemic, like buds of like ecosystems of care that really are, are more mainstream and normalized and support. There's no sense of margins anymore, right? There's, there's an even diffusion, diffusion of, of an allocation of resources and access not even maybe for maybe more so like equitable or based in liberation practices. So I see that I see a lot more issues with the climate. And so I think there will be a lot more opportunities for people to use their time and their labor for the benefit of other people. I don't know if we will have a choice, (laughs) honestly, at that point in time. For me personally, my kid will probably be in high school at that point. I'm working on actually redefining what what labor means for me and and how I use it and how I value it and how I value my time. In 2032, I know that I will be even more far along in that journey, maybe even like not working, right? Like just every, everything is play, you know, because we are supported and resources and, and, and spirituality and in all the ways that all can dream. But yeah, just like an expansion of ecosystems of care. Thank you for sharing that. I hope it'll happen. So if this conversation is a capsule for your contribution to your community and your story at this time, is there like anything else you'd like to share or say regarding your thoughts or feelings around mutual aid and art? keep doing what you're doing you know there there are always peaks and as an intention for myself intend to make the peaks higher than any depth of the valley could ever take me to continue to just like take care of myself so that I can take care of community and whatever that looks like and however that shows up you a real one that's also what I was saying to myself yes (laughs) And I love you. I love, I love you. That's that's love, full of love. That is truly what I like to express. (laughs) Thank you so much. How would you like people to continue supporting your work? Well, you can support using your dollars. You can donate to Sustainable Brooklyn. The website is sustainable. S-U-S-T-A-I-N-A-B-L-E. And there's a donate button there. You can join any of our volunteer days that we have coming up. We announced them on our Instagram page, though I think we are taking a little bit of a break to restructure. We will be hiring soon. So right now we're just focusing on fundraising so that we can pay the people who will eventually be working. You can send us all of your good vibes and protect us in a bubble of love and energy and light and all that stuff. We'll request dialogue for, for us to really even, you know, get some real talk. You know, I'm always welcome to that. And 
yeah, so I think all of that is supporting sustainable Brooklyn. For my work, just look out for the ways that I continue to have a career in doing me. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Whitney, for this <laughs> just like uh, amazing conversation. I, I learned oh, a lot. Thank you for just being open and thoughtful and, and expansive, just the way that you speak, the way that you describe your work. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you to the listeners. And Thank you. Until <laughs> next time, stay safe and well. Yes. Thank you so much, Duomo. This was really fun. Thank you.